Well, welcome back to Fathoms and Enneagram podcast, where we sometimes talk about the Enneagram. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm really, really excited about today because what we've got in store for you is a conversation, um, really fun conversation we're going to have with an amazing guest who has a, a lot of impact on me personally, uh, directly and indirectly through his work. Uh, he's one of the most genuine people uh, I've honestly ever met. Uh, Miles Adcox, welcome to Fathom. So glad you're here, man. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, all of you, for having me. Yeah, man. How, how are you doing in this moment? How are you feeling? <laughs> Good question. Well, I kind of I had a little, I'm a words of affirmation kind of guy. So when you said that kind introduction, uh, introductions are always interesting to me. Usually it's accolades, but um, mm-hmm. one of the most genuine people I met, that really, uh, that was meaningful. So as soon as you said that, I had a little dopamine release. I was like, all right, my man, <laughs> he, filled, he filled me up there. So yeah, overall, it's, uh, I would say it's, it's been a morning of a lot of problem solving, which is not unusual for me in my role. And it's something I mm. enjoy at times, but it does come with some inherent stress. And this morning I was trying to solve a few of those. So I think I'm probably coming in having been holding a little tension and stress and and as I said, I kind of felt warm when you you introduced me there. So excited to get a break from that. Oh, Talk to you all. Yeah. Awesome. I'm glad, man. Well, uh, maybe to help continue on uh, some of the dopamine here, uh, we, we like to kick off some of our conversations sometimes with some just uh, more fun ice-breaking questions. You know, depending on how uh, thick the ice is between us, <laughs> maybe more questions we'll have to ask. But yeah, uh, so here we go. These are kind of lightning round questions, so speed round. So just wh- whatever hits you, first thing on your top of your head. Um, so would you rather win an Olympic medal or a Nobel Prize? Ooh. I don't do lightning very well. I'm always a, a contemplator. So. <laughs> Give me the simplest question. I'll be like, hmm. Um. Yeah, right. We just got relaxed and now we're like, okay. This is uh, the thunderstorm's uh, pretty far away. So, like, there's some distance between the thunder and lightning. You know? I, I think I would go with the Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. What did you do to deserve that? Oh. That's what I want to know. Oh boy, that one would take a little time and thought because there's so. Yeah, that's not I a even, even, even had a, I even had an opportunity to develop something that was significant enough to get noted by that community. Then it would be pretty groundbreaking. So, I mm. you know I, I think a lot of what calls me forward as a person and a professional is to create. Uh, bit of an emotionally well world with a bit more self-awareness, empathy, harmony. I'd love to see us come out of our, our corners. You know, right now we're just find ourselves in a bit of a polarized position and a lot of people mm-hmm. kind of anchor into their camps when they're there. And I think if I could uh, be acknowledged for some significant innovative intervention that shifted the paradigm of the way we connect to one another, then I would mm-hmm. feel really good about that. That's great. Well done. Well done. I love that answer. Okay, Miles, you have a full day to yourself, zero obligations. How do you spend that day? Just me or I can choose who I want to spend it with. Yeah. Both. Uh, both. How would I spend that day? I don't get many days to myself, so I, I'm going to be selfish for a minute. Part of me was like, well, of course I'd want to spend it with my family and my kiddos, and but I get to spend quite a bit of time ah. with them. So I think, it, I know, I <laughs> I think if I had a full day um, <laughs> with no obligations, boy, does that sound good. I'm definitely going to be spending right? it with uh, with horses. 
I'm a horse mm-hmm. guy through and through. Uh, and there's other, I have a lot of outdoor, I'm an adventure outdoorsy kind of guy. So I like doing pretty much anything out, outside, but horses uh, are, I'm really into them right now. I grew up with them. I was into them for a long time. And then as I've been building what I've been building, I, I didn't have enough time to commit to it. And then over the last two years, I've just re-energized and have gotten back into them significantly. So I'd probably spend a day on, at my farm mm-hmm. riding and just hanging with the herd. You know, you just reminded me, I fell down the rabbit hole a while back of like the cuteness overload that is your Instagram page. And I saw the <laughs> video of the pony, the pony video. Ah, so I have to know how is Spirit? Uh, thank you for watching that. And uh, she, Spirit, he is, um, he's doing really well. He needs a little bit more attention. I'd say he, you know, Horses are just like us. In order to sustain uh, their mental well-being and their relationship with humans, they need consistency. So, especially ponies. Really? <laughs> I mean, yeah, ponies. Oh wow! It's something about the breeding uh, to get a pony to be a pony. They come with an attitude, and huh. yeah, ponies can have an attitude because they can be the most loving, sweet little, beautiful creatures, and just turn around and, and bite you. Or give you. But <gasps> spirit, yeah. spirit, thankfully, is not that way. Um, and it's what you're referring to for the listener is I had, I was uh, with my daughter two weeks before Christmas this year, putting her to bed and we did our prayers and we're having little nighttime stories. And I sometimes will ask her, so what are you going to dream about tonight? And I did that night. And she said, I'm going to dream about a pony. And you just heard I'm a horse guy. So I was like, yes. Um, so tell me more. <laughs> you know, what, she said, what kind of pony? And she said, what's, well, it's a blonde pony like me. And then she said, mm. I said, well, what's his name? And she had a name for it and everything. I mean, she tells, she puts a thought of a spirit. So you know what happens next. I go, I sprint out of that room the minute she closes her eyes and I'm online like <laughs> Palomino <laughs> pony. And, and I want to buy out, ponies in 2020. For, for, all the, uh, for all the parents out there, don't buy a pony two weeks before Christmas online in a horse <laughs> auction. Bad idea. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to spend way too much. But no, it's, uh, oh Spirit, Spirit's doing great. It was a beautiful surprise and pretty funny, but she's, uh, my, my daughter loves her. So we're having a good time. Thanks for that question. Last one. All right. You can add, you're going to grant everyone in the world an extra hour in their day, but they have to fill it with something that you want them to fill it with. What are you going to, what do you suggest? This is going to sound, sound a little bit cheesy. I might get another eye roll or thumbs down. Um, but, uh, but I did go there because I, I, I just, to me, when I feel connected and included in with others, then it, it's kind of one of the warmest and best feelings in the world. And so I think everybody has a different way to arrive there. But I do know right now we're, we're dealing with a bit of a loneliness epidemic. And I just mm-hmm. that's what I see a lot of because I get to work with thousands of people every year. And I see a lot of people that whether they're ex- highly extroverted and they're sevens and they are used to they're still feeling pretty lonely. And so I guess if everybody had an extra hour and I would hope everybody could have a meaningful connection in whatever way they do that and walk away feeling mm. s- a little bit more stitched in to community. No thumbs down there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing that we wanted to jump into um, to kind of initiate the conversation is, you know, these, these, some, there's some terms out there in the mental health field that kind of get thrown around, especially with 
um, culture being exposed to to them as well. And I'm I'm just uh, wondering if we could kind of attend to them with more of a beginner's mind. And if you could define for us in this moment right now, what comes to mind when you hear the question, what is mental health and emotional wellness? Mm. Well, as mental health has been pop cultureized, and then I've been on the clinical side of it for a long time, I've, I've really been on an effort to try to depathologize the way we talk about mental health so that it mm. doesn't come with the baggage of insider language, mm. you know, it, because I think that turns off a lot of people. And so I'm, I'm probably going to give a general answer that my peers would criticize, but hopefully it is what it is. Um, mm. But I, you know, to me, it's much like the, how I answered that last, last question uh, around how would you spend an extra hour when I am mentally well, then I feel a sense of peace and connection to myself. Uh, I'm able to accept who I am and, and who I'm becoming, flaws and all. And therefore, I think that is the ingredient or DNA to do that well with others. In other words, when I can be a bit more humane to myself, I'm a lot more humane to other people. I think that simple recipe creates a better humanity. And I think that's really what at, the, at our core mental and emotional wellness is all about. It's just a state of, of, of being. It's not perfect. It's not feeling good all the time. It's just being able to acknowledge whatever feeling and space that you're in. And not let that, not try to escape it, not try to run from it, not let it define you, not to overattach to it, but just be with it in a way that allows you to feel whole as a human being. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. I, I really liked what you said about the baggage of insider language, because I think we experience that as Enneagram professionals also, is that there's this way that you want to make things more accessible so people can really utilize these helpful tools. And yeah, that's that's a really wonderful way. Of, of putting that. We're experiencing that also in the Enneagram world where you want to make things more accessible to people so that they can experience the benefits of these tools. And at the same time, it's like there's that really thin line between when something becomes so accessible that it's just, it's pop culture and the definitions kind of get misused. And um, so one thing that we wanted to hear from you about is as therapy and mental health and pop psychology, as it's just on the rise um, and there's more awareness and acceptance, which is all wonderful and we want that, um, how do you approach working with people that come to onsite to sort of strike that balance there? Does that make mm. sense? Uh, I think so. You, I think we'll know if I answer it one way or the other, and then you can feel free to uh, redirect me if I head down the wrong lane here. But, I, you know, I think um, the idea that popular culture has become more interested and accepting towards a field of study and a professional pursuit that I've been involved with and anchored in for quite some time is really fun. I mean, it's a fun time when yeah. something you feel like you've been excited about behind the scenes is suddenly everyone's talking about it. It, it also right. feels good that for years to talk about mental and emotional health, it felt like pushing a snowball up a hill. And mm. now it feels like it's just on the crest and starting to roll down the other side. There's, there's, and often that's just at the surface because usually you get a couple layers in, even though it's popular and trending or more popular and trending than it used to be. Often what happens first when something like that starts to evolve as a necessary solution or a need for humanity is that 
the good communicators and good orators and leaders will pick up on it as a trend. And they're like, oh, wow, I have influence and this is trending. So uh, let's be vulnerable today because that's what the audience probably would want to hear. And uh, that's where it gets a a little bit uh, dangerous is when you're kind of manufacturing or positioning yourself towards a field of study that maybe you haven't done much personal work in, but you've just read a few Mm -hmm. self-help books. Uh, but you're really good at reading an audience and you know what they want. Mm-hmm. And and I don't want to be too critical of that because even that I think is a good attempt to lower stigma, just talking about it. There's no, par- but that's where I see a lot of people get in trouble is when they get out in front of their skis and haven't really been integrated with the message that they're talking about. And then you see them struggle for it. So I think the danger of pop culture, I saw this happen in codependency. It's another thing we work a lot with and it really got pop culturized, you know, 20 years ago. And, or really 30 years ago. And it went from being uh, this condition that so many people struggle with. It can be consuming and it can be detrimental to your physical and emotional health. And suddenly it was like, if you open a door for somebody, you're codependent and the whole world's <laughs> codependent. And, and, and it kind of lost its meaning a little bit. Same thing's happening with trauma right now. It's really, and, and that's where you run the risk of uh, getting weaponized, some uh, people getting a, li- a, a little bit more vic- stuck in a victim space uh, by over-attaching or identifying to the term or the label. So yeah. that's, and, and right now, I've got a lot more to say about this than I thought, um, but, <laughs> sorry, but right now it's interesting I, because, and I'm a, I picked on pop culture a little bit, but I'm going to pick on us, um, not pick on us, but just call us forward, if you will. Our space, i.e. behavioral health professionals and psychology and counseling and therapy, I think we're we're guilty of being a little too fragmented in our approach. And what I mean by fragmented is not like collaborating with where we're trying to go in a unified way. We just get in our corners and mm-hmm. we all study what we believe in. We pick our model. We try to differentiate our service. And we all say, we're the best at that. They're the best at this. And in, in doing so, we're still operating from a very old construct, which you know, from the fifties, the whole social work movement, it's mm-hmm. therapy, I think it's always been branded all wrong. It's, it's, it's position. I mean, we study human behavior. We know what happens in human beings and their minds and how that works. Think about the implication way beyond we help you when the wheels fall off of your life or your relationships, but that's how mm-hmm. we're positioned and seen is we're the, we're the person anonymously behind the curtain that when life's not working out, you can quietly come and we'll tell you, you don't need to have a stigma, but we'll also tell you, we won't ever tell anybody about your secrets. And just think about that. I mean, it's just kind of like, yeah. and because we're still operating one dimensionally and we're waiting on culture to come to us instead of going to culture with our information, then predictably the problem is outpacing the solution, i.e. us like four to one, because we, you know, we, it's statistics are off the charts in mental health, despite our best efforts. I'm somebody as a mental health professional that's like, man, I know we're doing some good, but what are we missing? How come, mm-hmm. how come we're not coming together? And when, th- when, we, when, when we don't come together as the professionals, pop culture is going to do it for us. And that's kind of what's happening is, in, you know, if you look at the whole influencer world, the pastor world, the leader world, the self-help author world, they're all talking about mental health as if they have more expertise than we do. And that's mm. a, as I said, that's a, it's a good thing because they're monetizing it and figuring out how to make, you know, they're, and, but also there's a lack of depth of study and understanding to be able to mobilize it in a way. So it's, there's good and, and challenge. And I think both sides could come together a little better, but to make a long story, just a tad longer overall, I don't shy away from the pop culture movement. I know it's mm-hmm. inherent risk. 
I know a lot of my my friends and colleagues have really said media and mental health they have no no business intersecting, but I don't think we ever reach people unless we intersect with media. It's messy, absolutely, but I think mm-hmm. we've got to do it because they're the ones mm-hmm. influencing my kids more than myself or our mm-hmm. local pastor ever will. So I hear wow. you saying that you're willing to deal with the mess as long as the message is being shared. Am I hearing you right about that? I think I'm. Yeah, I think that's. A, I think that I, I would agree with that. I'm willing to. I'm willing to work with people who are clumsy in talking about my mm. trade. I'm not one of those people mm. that get get in a corner and get protective or in scarcity about. And they don't know what they're talking about. How's that person representing my health? I'm like, good for them. They're giving it a go. I don't know that you know, because I could even say in my career, a few years in, were my intentions pure? I don't know. I think probably if I look back, I was chasing my own story, trying to find some wholeness mm-hmm. in me by helping other people. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people get in our space doing that. So, yeah. wow, yeah. yeah. Um, I forget where I, where I heard this initially said, but um, it's been said that technology precedes ethics. Um, you know, we, we, we start, we start asking the question, is this okay? What's going to happen to us if after, you know, we start asking the question way later after technology has already done its thing. And so, you know, the internet has brought information just immediately, right. To people. And I'm just thinking about this, um, idea that you're talking about with, um, so much influence and so much pop psychology and the way that healing is being communicated, um, excessively. And, I'm just curious if how you might caution the average person when it comes to consuming self-help content or mental health content. What is what's helpful about the availability in your mind and maybe what's what's harmful? How would you navigate that? You know, I think overall this the self-help personal development movement that is really popular right now and it's borrowing from a lot of the concepts of psychology and therapy. I think for the most part, it's it's helpful because it's an invitation into taking a deeper look at who we are and who we're becoming, regardless of what season of life we're in. And historically, we disseminated it in a way that when, as I said this earlier, when you're when you feel broken, we got you. We, we know what to do. We got the tools to help put you back together. And now I think people are seeing it a little bit more preventatively and proactively seeing that actually it's I don't need this. Uh, maybe we all deserve it to become a better version of who we are. So that's the upside. I think the downside yes. is I do think there's a risk a little bit of as we start to get armed with the tools and let's say we just get information and information alone. I'm I'm not a I'm not a believer that inf- information alone really creates a lot of change, sustainable change. Mm-hmm. I think the information has to be assimilated and we have to do the emotional work to be able to process the information, then to be able to give it life within ourselves and emulate it to other people. And what's ironic is the more you do your own work, the less you have to do to influence change with others. I've noticed that over the years as I've worked with people, I, I say less and less and listen more and more and hold space and energy. I'm sure you guys probably could do the same with your expertise. Uh, but I do. I did at one point, And I see this a lot with people who are in, you know, crisis is usually still the motivator that gets people interested in mental health, unfortunately, like really interested, not interested in reading about it and talking about it on Instagram, but like Mm -hmm. interested in pursuing it. Mm -hmm. They're going through change, transition, relational stress, whatever it might be, trauma. And sometimes you get this infusion of labels and content that helps you make sense of your story. 
then your brain starts to categorize it and say, oh, wow, I'm, I'm codependent. I'm relationship dependent. I'm, I'm a trauma survivor. I'm maybe an addict or not. And all of a sudden you see these things that help you make sense of your story. And initially it probably offloads some of the shame you've been carrying because you're like, ah, oh, okay. Now I know what's going on and I don't have to, but often if you stay there, then you get over attached to the pathological part of your story. And I see this a lot in well-intended recovery circles to where you, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I see people that will come to us that have been in recovery for 20 years and they give me all their labels before I even know their name. Sometimes they don't give me their mm-hmm. name. And I'm like, who are you mm-hmm. beyond your addiction or beyond your, mm-hmm. and so I think we can over attach to our pain story often uh, mm-hmm. when we're first getting introduced to this and when we're getting flooded every day with mental health and that actually reverse engineers where we don't get the benefit mm-hmm. of being a whole human and living well, because we're so attached to that victim story, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's speaking to a lot of what we're, we're trying to talk about in this season where we're, we're drilling down on what is it, what does it mean to be a person and all the labels and stories and beliefs that are a part of that and how complex it is. And to reduce anyone to a label is to dehumanize them on some level. And, um, so I, I do wonder, um, I don't remember where this term came from, but this idea of crescendo culture where whether it's social media or whatever, that everything is supposed to be a magical Disney moment where the the orchestra (laughs) swells and it's, it's wonderful. And I wonder with your experience of the, the success of onsite in your own, in your own, um, in your own work, do you ever feel the pressure or, or, or just projection? for you or on site to have the silver bullet or that you need to inhabit some sort of guru stance. Definitely. And I appreciate that question. It reminds me of the tale of a question prior, maybe two before where you asked me how we handle something at onsite. And I forgot to answer that part. So I think I can answer both here. Right. Uh, I, I, I have kind of an allergy to the guru idea. Uh, and I, I just, have had some experiences and I'm, you know, I I know, I know most of the people in our field that would have the guru status. I've, I've overlapped or interacted with them. Some of them are friends and some of them have been mentors over time, but I just, I don't think that's sustainable for the guru or for their, the people they influence. (laughs) And I, I've tried to be, I've tried to find the rhythm and I, I still don't know how to do it. Uh, to be a face and a representative of a mission that I care about, because I know there's value in that. And every time I do it, when I when I become a little more public with a message, it 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 invites people into onsite or other spaces and to get canceled. So it's like that's a, that's a benefit. But it, I'll, I'll be honest, it comes at a cost to me almost every time. I struggle with social media, and I've got a whole team that struggles with my struggle with social media because they're like, they're like, we gotta have consistency. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, it's just so yeah. unnatural to to put yourself out there that way and to try to be something like that, and it kind of dehumanizes even you. Um, so I, I'm I'm real careful with the guru status, but I do think there's benefit in having an influence and platform sure. as long as you're congruent, authentic, and responsible with it. I'm trying to engage it, but boy, I struggle with the the social and public side of it. But then part two of that is I, we try it onsite when people, you, you know, ask earlier, how do you address this at onsite? We just, we do our best to try to be with people and not in front or behind them. 
to join them mm. as more of a guide in their story versus uh, someone who has an answer for them. We firmly have a philosophical belief that everybody has the tools within them to create the change that they need. And that's not what people want to hear. You know, when they come to a place like us, they're like, we paid you money and time to give us an answer. You know, let's, mm. let's get there. And, and that's yeah. a little frustrating at times, but it, it, I think a lot of well-intended self-help movements create dependence on their brand. And yes. we've, we've been through that and we didn't mean to, it's just, obviously you want brand equity because there's loyalty there and brand equity, meaning if you come excited about a brand, cause you heard somebody that had a good experience with it, you've already got a little trust and a little trust. Mm-hmm. You get to psychological safety faster and the faster you get there, the faster you get to change. So it's a, it's a trade-off, it's a benefit. But then I quickly, we quickly try to tell people when they get there, it's like, we, we do not want to be the person that you feel you have to have in your life to be whole. Uh, we, if this is the one time you visit us, wonderful. If you decide to make it annual and come back once a year, wonderful, but you don't need us to do life. Well, uh, we just are uh, Mm -hmm. accompany you and try to support you to take the next step forward. And we do that as, as well as we can, but in a world that's kind of counter, that's countercultural, it's kind of hard to do. Mm, Yeah. Growth, growth ain't always sexy. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, it, and, and it's, it's not sunshine and rainbows when our kind of work. And that's, I'm an experienced yeah. guy. I'm an event guy. I love curating experiences for people. I think people get wounded in experience. And I think really good practitioners curate experiences to heal people through story and movement and action. I love that. And I, and I've, I'm a human, so I want it to go well. So when people come, I love that, that trajectory of like, they start here and Boom. You know, after a few days, they're skipping through the meadow, kumbaya, everything's great. But that's mm. not that, that's not always indicative of change. As a matter of fact, most of the time, it's mm-hmm. not. What is indicative True. is if you tell them up front, this process is designed for you to struggle. And mm. they're like, wait a minute, I've been struggling in life. I came here to get away from that. And we're like, yes. But we want you to be able to struggle for the first time in an authentic and safe way where you'll be accepted and not judged, where you'll be supported and guided and not told what to do and advised. And that's a different experience. It's a corrective experience, but it's hard as a practitioner to watch a guest come and then like say a few days in, they're really struggling. And you're like, Oh my goodness. I remember when I was greener and earlier, I'd be like, Oh goodness, we're doing something wrong. They're not doing well. Mm-hmm. We got to fix it. What are we missing? Mm-hmm. And now I'm now I can step back and be like, you know, in our group process, we call that the storming phase. But they're right where they need to be. Yeah, that reminds me of I'm not going to say the whole thing, but a quote from James Hillman who talks about anytime you're going to grow, you're going to lose something. You're going to lose what's familiar to you. Uh, you're going to experience, you know, the discomfort of you know having attached to something that's been working for so long. Yeah, that makes. That makes a lot of sense, man. Um, and it's it's so good to hear that uh, an organization that is trying to bring about health, more health in the world is healthy itself uh, in its approach to what it's limited on on their ability to give. Um, so yeah, um, moving on in our in our conversation, y- you were talking about um, the, your language was attaching to a victim story, and in our season here at Fathoms. Uh, we're, we've been trying to talk about the dynamics of personhood for us, and that those that's there's lots of dynamics in personhood, but we've been naming that through um, individuality, mutuality, and unity. And so for us, this is exploring the layers, complexity of identities. Uh, so that's stories and beliefs to deeply honor them, while at the same time 
um, challenge the ways in which these stories uh, tend to limit us as well. Basically, the idea is um, just ad addressing you were naming, attaching to victim stories. It's it's super important to be able to name what our story is, but how sometimes um, we can get in the trap of that also limiting us and how we can work to balance the you holding both of those. Mm. Yeah, good good question. The there's a lot of ways to to do this and without attaching it to a specific therapeutic modality, I, I definitely want to give one because I want to give credit where credit's due is a guy named uh, Dick Swartz, who I know he's a great guy, uh, started a, a model called IFS, Internal Family Systems, and it's a therapeutic model. And the context, and, and there's other models that support this as well, but the context is there are various parts to self, and we call it parts work. And it's a model we use a lot experientially at, at onsite, but it's we engage with, have our conversations with different parts of self. And there, and that to think that we're all one uh, would be very difficult because that's where if I discover that I'm struggling in my relationship, then that's a part of me. That's not all of me, but there's a part of me mm -hmm. that is struggling to connect in this way. But there's also another part of me that has this element going on. So I find with people that when we can introduce some frame that... If you're feeling if you're feeling anxiety, you're not anxiety. There's a mm. part of you that's feeling anxiety, and let's talk to that part. Mm. Let's don't we don't have to kill it, get rid of it for you to feel happy. It probably will always have a seat at the table. How might it serve you? Let's just let's see if we can talk to it in a way that you guys are a little more friendly, so that you can control the volume on it without always resisting and trying to challenge it. Does that make sense? Yeah. In a sense, I was just I'm trying to say I think if you're going to identify something and that is part of your story. I like helping people recognize that it's usually not all of your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that model of uh, internal family systems, um, especially helps, uh, what I hear you saying and what I've experienced as well, having done some of that work, um, is basically, uh, recognize that I am, I have my, I have thoughts. I am not my thoughts. I have emotions. I am not my emotions. Are, is there, is there like any kind of, I don't know, real life, not real life, that's what we're hopefully doing right now. But uh, day to day to day, like practice without going to see a professional um, that I can work to practice uh, that I am not my emotions. I have my emotions or feelings mm. or thought. I mean, thoughts. There, yeah, there's there's several ways to do that. I I like anything that gets me moving. And I'm a big fan. Uh, as mm. I said, experience earlier, there's kind of an experiential learning, teaching, therapy, counseling, coaching, experiential mediation. There's a lot of cool ways to bring action and imagery and movement into a communication process. I'm a fan of all of them because it, and I could nerd out on the neuroscience of the benefit of it. But rather than me just telling you what I feel, I'd rather... I did this for a young man earlier that I was had a coaching session with. And I, you know, the last week he was, he's trying to find out, uh, he's trying, he's trying to find his way in a relationship and struggling with the relationship. And so we started with, well, what do you, what do you feel like you want in a relationship? And he was like, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever asked that. I've always just assumed that the other person would bring that. And I said, well, let's start with clarifying that. So I had him do, what I call a 2010-5 list. And I said, I want you to write down the 20 things that you most desire in a relationship. 
the 20 attributes that you most desire in a relationship. And that's a little harder than you think, because once you get down to 10 or so, you're like, really, are there more? But it's a fun process because it really makes you work it out and clarify it. And then once you get the 20, I would say of those 20, which are the 10 that you feel like are the most important that you'd prioritize. And then I would say of those 10, what are the five that you can't live without? And then when you get those, uh, then you've clarified something. But what I did this morning was I took the 10 and the five and I, I, I put them onto sheet of, uh, sheets of paper and I spread them all over the floor. And rather than me ask him, well, uh, you put honesty here. Uh, why is that important? I said, why don't you walk around the room and stand next to what you most identify and relate to? and speak from the position of why that's important to you and where it started historically. And it's amazing what that can promote. So to answer your question, there's something we use called feelings floor check. And we will do that with feelings. We'll get seven emotions, spread them around the room and have a group or an individual. And I do it by myself sometimes. I'll just say, hey, just stand next to the feeling that you most identify with. And there's something about our body when we're moving and we stand, stand on something, identify it. First of all, it's how close am I to it? How far away? Can I split and stand on both? And you just provide clarity and use you get a little more open. But that's an exercise that really helps me reset and get clear on what I'm feeling so that the feeling doesn't overtake me. Mm, yeah, I remember um, initial the initial night of attending uh, with my my wife and I uh, doing that, thinking, "What in the hell are we doing? What, what is this? What's going on?" <laughs> you know, so nervous about what we just got ourselves into, but also just that was so uh, beneficial, moving our bodies to help us engage what what it is that we're feeling. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier um, when people come to onsite and you see them running and frolicking in the fields, uh, that's <laughs> when you're a little bit concerned that like mm, they're maybe not getting it. Um, <laughs> So there's this, there's this concept out there called um, clean and dirty pain. And that's to me what it sounds like you're referring to in some ways of the dirty pain being, um, I guess, an analogy, right? There's, there's the, um, the pain of avoiding exercise where our body starts to kind of rebel against not taking care of it. And then there's the clean pain of working out um, where there's the burn of the muscle, but that means there's growth and there's healing happening. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and how would someone know whether they're, um, how they're dealing with their pain, how they're engaging their pain, whether it's the dirty or the clean. Hmm. That's an interesting, interesting frame and concept. I, I, and I, and I, I should clarify, I was, I was somewhat joking about the frolicking up. People are going to hear this episode be like, I'm never going there. <laughs> they, sounds they sound woo woo and crazy. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we, we don't frolic in the field and we don't kumbaya. That was a joke earlier, but uh, they're like the, checking uh, the website to see yeah. if Nicole Kidman's on staff. Like, is it a nine <laughs> strangers sort of yeah, totally. <laughs> debunk? Um, no, it's, it's, I think you'll find, uh, people are pretty surprised when you arrive that it's a everyday people navigating everyday stuff in a pretty normal retreat mm -hmm. center environment. It's, I think a lot of times when you think about going somewhere to engage in counseling and therapy, you're thinking we're padded walls, no doorknobs. This is where you go. And, and, um, <laughs> there's nothing, um, nothing wrong with those places either. I know everybody's in different seasons of life, but it's, uh, no, this, we, we really try to make it a really normal process. And I think that's part of the strategy is that, how do you take something like the construct of navigating your pain uh, or emotional pain or historic pain or current fear and do it in a way where it feels human 
and normal. And everything about the aesthetics of our environment, the culture we try to create. Now, we don't hit all the marks. You know, we're, we're normal. So I'd love to say that was a really great uh, affirmation. Again, Seth, you're good at that. Uh, earlier when you said it's nice to see a place that um, I think you said where the culture is healthy uh, when you're trying to promote health. And I have seen that a lot in my career where when you take a peek backstage, what's being promoted out front doesn't feel congruent. And, but I'll say to try to sustain optimum health all the time, emotionally or physically is, is dang near impossible. So we're very human, but, and we're very aware of when we miss it, but we're always in pursuit of it. That's what makes it beautiful. So we're, we're, we're still a mess just because we're a whole bunch of people trying to do a cool thing, but we're a mess with a pretty good mission because we're attuned to where we get it wrong. We correct, we repair, but to, to offer an environment like that, that will hold people in their pain, regardless of what side of the aisle it might be coming from alone, uh, I believe is in, inclusive and it's supportive to people stepping uh, into healing. When it comes to one or the other, I do, I, I do think that, well, I'll just, I'll make it interpersonal here. My wife and I have kind of reverse roles recently. It's been really interesting and I'm almost certain she'd be okay with me telling this story. I was pretty confident. I hope she would be. Um, we'll see. Take it out later if yeah. I'll post edit if I call you. Mayday, mayday. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, no, but we, when we first met and were courting and dating and then all the way up to engaged and married, for the most of our relationship, I would say pain to her was a dirty word. And it, it, it felt she, she didn't process the way I process. She didn't live in my ecosystem. She didn't necessarily see the benefit of processing things and talking them through and navigating them and identifying and owning your pain and sharing your blind spots. And I did like an overdrive. I did. And I also found that I was attracted to people who did, you know, friendships, relationships. I want people who are willing to resolve issues instead of stuff them. And that wasn't her process. And, but yet she's an amazing human. So I would, when a problem came up between us, I wanted to process it in the moment and let's put the pain on the table and talk about it. I would probably call that clean pain, either I'm not a hundred percent dialed into that particular metaphor. So I might be missing it a little, but, uh, she was more in the realm of, I'm not ready to talk about that. Let's tuck that away. And I may be able to come back to it in a few days or maybe not at all. And I didn't know what to do with that. I thought that felt threatening mm -hmm. to me. It's like, what's happening here? And, and at that time, let me just tell you where she was. She had an active creative career in a city that was known for creativity. She was working in a space that's known for being in Los Angeles. And, and she was contemplating uprooting her life and moving across the country to Nashville where you, you don't have that industry. And that's been her dream. It's what been, she'd been doing since she was a little girl. And it was very much what she was passionate about. And you they just didn't really have it in Nashville the way they do in Los Angeles. So it wasn't like you could just go on an audition because there weren't any auditions to go on in Nashville. So she was in a pretty stressful spot in her life. And so it made sense that she might not have her, the clean pain is easily accessible and it was more easy to put it away. Mm -hmm. Ironically, we've reversed roles in the last year or two. And now mm -hmm. I find her in a space of wanting to talk about stuff and resolve stuff right away. And I've been kind of running from it some. I think I'm more mm -hmm. probably, if that's what you meant, more on the dirty side of it to where it's a little harder for me to look at. Um, and part of that is post-pandemic, we've just been on a roller coaster ride. And, and mm -hmm. it's been 
I've never seen so much inquiry. I've never seen so much need. Mm-hmm. I've never been, uh, I've never seen our tools be so useful for humanity. And I'm both intrigued and excited and overwhelmed by that. And I find myself often, and, and I'm a sensitive empath. And so when I watch media, I consume too much of it. And so between what we've all been navigating on a national and international stage mixed with what my profession supports people in, I would say I'm sitting on consumption fatigue most days. And when I come home and I don't have any room uh, to process pain that might be in our relationship or in my own life, I usually put it in the closet until I've got the space to do it. So we, I, we just yeah. we just came across that pattern, which is why I'm sharing it. I was like, oh, look at that. I said, I'm in a space of, in some ways, not being congruent with what I'm inviting other people to do. I mean, and I think something to clarify here, I don't think clean and dirty paint is necessarily inherently bad or good. Sometimes we can't deal with the pain at the moment, right? If you're going on a hike, yeah, you're going to be experiencing this sort of rigorous, your, your muscles are going to be tight and you you might have a backache too, but you have to get to your destination. You can't mm-hmm. just attend to your backache at the moment because you have somewhere to go. You have somewhere to be. Um, and sure, deal with it at some point. But I think a lot of people don't start exercising until they have that heart attack, right? And until that friction of not doing something is more uncomfortable than the friction of doing something better for yourself. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, That's great. Man, I wish you to just answer that. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I just think I want to make sure people are clear that I'm not like Mm -hmm. avoid. Sometimes survival is all you have and that's okay. Um, There's nothing wrong with coping. It's when coping begins to control you. And I was going to say too, like when you're talking about your wife, Miles, I think that the, her ability to know herself and know what she needs in that moment with you could be an example of clean pain and, or dealing with that pain in what we might say in this, in this case, in a clean way, self-awareness, right. Can be what leads to dealing with pain in a way. I know I'm a person who wants to deal with it. I don't like the tension and the friction. Let's just have the conversation and get it over with. But for other people, they need something different because they're wired differently than me. Mm-hmm. Both can be good. Yeah, well said. I'd, I'd like us to transition into more into kind of trauma informed ways of being. In a lot of circles, like we, we talk about trauma as it relates to childhood or, or things like that. But I don't hear a lot of conversations around as a, as a capable, mature adult that has all their faculties, what should be in our trauma kit? Like 24 hours after experiencing some sort of trauma, what are the things that we need to do in order to metabolize that experience to, to really help process that experience? It's, it's tough to give a, uh, a, a, a three-step or a clear answer because we're, everybody's wired a little differently and everybody assimilates sure. trauma a little differently, which is fascinating. And, mm-hmm. and yet it's dif- it's difficult because we're 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 learning about trauma and how it impacts the brain nervous system and body somewhat on the trajectory of where computer science was in the 80s where it was just like i mean it was rapid learning mm. and we're th- mm-hmm. we're we're there now and that's exciting and it also should tip our hat to we don't know a lot and uh, we we know yeah. we know more than the the everyday consumer but there's a lot about the condition that's just getting studied well and, there, and we know a lot more than we used to, but there's still a whole lot more to learn. So I just want to be honest about that. But there are some foundational elements that we know are beneficial 
for instance, what I meant earlier is you can take two people who came from the a similar ba- or the same background. Let's say two people grew up in the same home, and then they go and uh, to to military and into the military and get deployed into a combat zone. They can finish their time up, and one can come back and be crippled and be diag- uh, crippled mentally and be diagnosed with uh, severe post traumatic stress disorder, and the other one can assimilate and cope and and do just fine. And it, it's not necessarily what they did right after the event that would determine who's mm-hmm. gonna who's gonna struggle more and who's gonna adapt better. It's more what happened on the trajectory leading up to the event. So mm-hmm. you could. Uh, meaning if they've had securely attached moments, if they felt grounded relationally, if they've been able to express their pain without it being judged, uh, you know, and it's not if you've done therapy or not, it's just if you've done community the way community should be done. And that mm-hmm. maybe that happened in your home. Maybe you had secure attachment in your home. We know people, if you take two different people from two different homes and one had a securely attached developmental stage and the other one didn't, this person's twice as likely to experience negative impacts of traumatic situations because of what they experienced early on. So it's fascinating. A lot of times we'll, our foundation, we do free, free programs every year with combat veterans and um, bereaved parents and survivors of mass shootings and all kinds of different populations. And people are surprised when they get there that we're often not working on the mass shooting itself or the combat traumatic moment. We're often going back and working on what happened early on to try to repair and secure that because we know that's going to help them assimilate the pain different. But so, but I would say it, it is important afterwards, if you do experience extreme stress, not to sit with that alone. But I'm cautious to say that because sometimes what we're seeing now is if somebody experienced some type of emotional, sexual, or physical abuse, then they're posting about it the next day. And that's yeah. not, that's not necessarily what I, what I mean. I, sometimes that can be counterproductive it's, is there a person that you can have a, you can share that would put, um, you know, empathy over an agenda and that could hold their advice back and be able to hold and support you. If you're able to offload part of your story, this part of the stress is coming with it. If the right person receives it, not everybody has that person in their life, but the good news is, is once you become that person, like we used to be guilty in our circles for telling everybody after you do work and repair certain things that happen along the way, we say, well, going forward, you need to be in relationship with safe people and safe friends and safe community and do faith with safe people. And the reality is safety doesn't exist out there. It's, I I think once you do the work, it starts to exist in here. And because we're all human, we're all capable of deceit, we're all capable of hurting each other, some more than others. But if we start to evaluate the world looking for people to, to ensure us of our own safety, it's, it's not going to be sustainable. When we feel anchored and safe in our own skin, then we can actually teach people how to support us having gone through uh, significant circumstances. For example, I'm talking to one person I, I know well. I'm talking to two people that are new to me and I just shared something that's current about my story, my wife and I's story and about me. That was more vulnerable on my side because, and I know I missed the uh, exact meaning of the dirty and, and clean, but I wasn't too far off, but I'm so glad y'all clarified. I was more thinking it's avoiding pain versus illuminating pain, hmm. but I'm, I'm in that season. I've been avoiding it a little bit and that feels vulnerable. And I share it because this is not the first time I've shared it. I've done exactly what I'd be advising someone else to do, having gone through stressful seasons of life and maybe not navigating it correctly. I'm doing that in real time. 
with two or three people, one of which has no training in our space. They aren't, they don't know how, they're not equipped to do this, but I know how to tell them what I need. And I say, Hey, I know we're new. We've been doing friendship for two years. Would you mind if I shared something with you that I'm, I'm navigating right now? And I think it's causing some tension that could turn into something later if I don't offload it. But would you mind just holding that and listening to it? I don't know that I need any fix or advice. I just want to share it with you. And, and he's brilliant at it. And so I say that to say, if you can find another human, and sometimes depending on the incident, might need to be a professional that's trained, a therapist, but not everybody has access to that. Not everybody can afford it. So it doesn't have to be that. But find another person who can hold you, not try to fix you, but just listen to you and offload the part of that story. We call that in some circles critical stress debriefing, but that's uh, a lot more sophisticated way to do it that I wish every law enforcement officer in the country was trained in. We're trying to train as many as we can, but yes, yes. No, that is a population we do need to have serious conversations about how we're caring for them. So I'm sure that you've experienced this either with people that you work with or, or for yourself. But when we're doing this trauma work, we, we feel like we're sort of making some progress and, and feeling good. And then we find ourselves in a deeper relationship, in an intimate relationship, and then things start bubbling up to the surface. Um, and especially as, as I found for myself becoming a parent, I often find myself face-to-face with my trauma as I'm staring in the face of my child. And so as a father, how have you experienced that? And, and what are some of the ways that you are making sure that what the work that you're doing is sort of outpacing what may happen instinctually in the moment with your child? Mm. And you guys have, this is a great, great, I'm excited to listen to your show. I really am intrigued <laughs> by your, the thought that you put into your questions and just, really great stuff. Um, the, yeah, I would say relationships, but particularly parenting is the biggest mirror that I've ever held up in my life, uh, towards my mm-hmm. soul and my psyche. Um, nothing has been more vulnerable, more thought provoking, um, more challenging. You know, I think, I I came into it armed with all this great information because I, I got a late start. You know, I'm an older first time dad and I've got toddlers and I definitely gave my career a lot more attention the first chunk. And and now I've got these babies and I'm really determined to try to balance it and give them the attention they deserve and that I deserve to be with them. But I just assume coming into it armed with all this information about the human um, trajectory and uh, human behavior that I was like, I'm going to crush the dad. <laughs> right. I mean, I, yeah. I I was like, I I got this. Um, And (laughs) in some ways, I I think, you know, older, mature, having done a lot of my work has certainly been a benefit, you know, versus starting in my 20s, I probably would have been a little different. Dad, I will say the the disadvantage is, my goodness, losing sleep in your 40s versus your 20s. Wow. Mm. Way different, way different bounce back experience. Um, So I'm tired most of the time. But um, I'm humbled because parenting is stressful. It's sleep depriving. It basically so when I so let's say I take a a trauma survivor comes to our long term uh, uh, trauma program, got a long term trauma wellness program called Milestones. It's, you know, 30, 60, 90 days when they get there. You know, you might think immediately we assess their story and start putting therapeutic modalities in their space to help heal, heal them. First, we're like, are you hydrated? Are you sleeping? Are you eating? 
Um, and if we can't get that stuff regulated, then it, you can't really do trauma recovery. And mm -hmm. we often, I see, you know, NGOs are, uh, have a challenge with this a lot because they go out and try to imply whatever their expertise is without remembering you can't support people in extreme stress in war-torn environments without, unless they have food, water, and shelter. You can't right. go in there and start trying to do therapy. So you got to get those basic needs met. And as parents, we're not getting those basic needs met. Most of us mm -hmm. are sleeping. Most of us are exhausted. And so to think that you're going to be able to access the tools you have all the time, forget about it. You know, in a stressful moment when a toddler's melting down, a lot of times your best agency is right out the window. Mm -hmm. But here's the beautiful thing that it's taught me. And I just, man, I really appreciate the way you articulated the question again is my favorite part about parenting is I don't think I've ever seen self-awareness and humility um, combined be more relevant, more effective and more impactful. And the more I'm doing it with my kids, the more I'm doing it in leadership, the more I'm doing it in relationship, the more I'm doing it in friendship. And honestly, it's gotten me out of my corner uh, of, you know, once we go through something like we all went through, everybody deals with the two things the human brain unconsciously fears the most, which is isolation and a fear of the unknown or, or unknown future. And then we next go to who do we agree with? And we feel comfortable with who we agree with. And we, we start talking together about who we disagree with. Mm -hmm. And then the disagreement gets bigger. And then we're all in camps all of a sudden. And then we, mm -hmm. and then it, it's, it's polar. So everybody's human. Everybody does that. Some subtle, some extreme. I was, I was there. I, I'm not usually, I'm not extreme left or right politically or anything, but I, I was there. I was like in my little camp, but my kids and that humility repair combination brought me out of it because I started realizing, oh my goodness, I don't have to get it right the first time, but I can catch it and I can repair it. Yes. And they are amenable to repair at two years old, at three years old, especially at five years old. But the number of times I get down on my knee and look at my little boy or girl and just out that, you know, I'd like to have handled that a little differently. Or I, I wish I'd have shared that a little different. And I just want you to understand that that piece that you just saw mommy and I navigate in the kitchen, that's not about you guys. That's, that's about us. I just, I get emotional thinking about it because I've, I've seen their little faces light up and how resilient and their bounce back is something that I can't do as an adult but they do it. Mm -hmm. And as they're doing it, they're teaching, teaching and reminding me constantly that I get to do that in my life too. So it's been really uh, a, le a great learning experience being a dad. Man, I, I, as you, as soon as you named that, I, I as well, am feeling the, the emotion uh, come up for me with my own kiddos. Um, I, I like to say often that my kids are my greatest teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and especially, um, all of them really, but I, I, I keep joking, but I hopefully will make this a reality in my life. You know, the, the bracelets that got popular for a while, WWJD, I want to make them with my son or all my kids initials in them. What would Athen do? Because <laughs> life would be so much more fun. Like, mm -hmm. It would just be more freeing and exhilarating and just, you know, accepting as, as things are. And for those not born in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. They've come back. They've already okay. made their I rounds again. All right, fine, We're fine, all on fine. the same page. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is, um, it is kind of cool that uh, what you just said, Seth, because if you think about a lot of times, and we are, we do help people often go back in their story, but it's not required for everybody. I think that's what scares a lot of people mm. away from counseling is you think you're going to go mm. dig up all the demons, internal thoughts. And in many cases, it's not even called for, you know, we don't want to go back and unpack certain things. It's all, it's all mm. different. But the idea that we, we, we can always, you know, look back and, and grow forward 
it's such a beautiful thing. So I would say 90% of the people that come through, we're trying to get them back to the stage that we're talking about. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like God created us to be these little resilient, um, curious, present beings. And then the world Mm -hmm. takes us on another journey and we spend the rest of our lives trying to get back Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you said that. And I remember, um, in one of the sessions with with Carlos, um, feeling such a freeing feeling when I asked him a conversation or a question about um, if I was able to heal some sort of trauma that I was that I received from someone I don't have access to anymore, and he just encouraged me that really what you have to experience is the emotion that's still there. You don't have to have a conversation with the person. You don't have to go back to when, yeah. So I just I appreciate you naming that, and I feel like that will be uh, relieving on some level yeah. for our, for our listeners as well. Continuing on in that um, that kind of parenting lens, I'm I'm curious. You know, you know the there is a common mis- misperception about professionals in the mental health space that you know you have it all together and somehow your lives maybe are are easier or are uh, happier. But I wonder if you would be willing to share maybe one difficult thing right now that you're currently working through with your kiddos. I, well, what I shared that I've been struggling with with my my wife is probably the biggest challenge with my kids as well in that I have had a difficult time recently um, assimilating all that I'm consuming. And I've got built-in natural ways to offload what I consume. You have to in our space if you're going to do this for the long haul. But for whatever reason lately, I've just been noticing that I don't have a lot of bandwidth. Uh, And often they the, they're the ones that get the last morsel when I come home and it's when they, mm-hmm. I need the most energy and I most days I can find it it's just it, it it's like supernatural you go home and you're like I can't even lift a finger I can't even take my shoes off and then all of a sudden your kid comes <laughs> in there and you're boom you're you're playing tag and yeah. I'm like okay I guess I can but there's some days that I've not done that well Seth if I'm honest where I'm not proud to say I've been on my phone too much and not even working because I don't, I'm, I'm really keen on trying not to bring work home, but I'll get us, I'll escape into a real estate app or a, a online horse <laughs> auction or whatever it might be. And, but I, I've not been as well, I'm struggling with presence. That was a long way for me. I think I'm struggling with presence with my kids right now. And again, they're great about me repairing it, but I'd rather them not have mm-hmm. to notice it. I'd rather notice it before they do. And lately, I think they've noticed it a time or two and mm-hmm. called it out, which they'll do. And oh, uh, that's a tough feeling to take that on. I think final final question here, Miles, and this has been this has just been great. Um, so thank you so much for showing up. But I'd love to give you a soapbox. You you mentioned just how how much you have to say to mental health um, professionals and whatnot when it comes to the misconception of mental health professionals live better or it's easier or happier or something like that. If you could just speak to mental health professionals, life coaches, Enneagram coaches, just anyone who's in the in the realm of helping people through life, what is it that you would say to them um, to one, dispel this myth, but what is like, what's just the thing that you want all those people to really lean into in this next year? My experience is that people trust, grow, and learn from process, not destination. And I think too many of us that have something to say around tools that we find beneficial, we come from 
unintentionally might come from the lens of the destination. Like here's where you arrive when you put these things in practice. And it implies, we, some, we have to plainly say it, but it implies that Ooh, yeah. we're there. We have this information, mm-hmm. so we're there. So, I'm, And I think people trust, the, the, if the to hear you're in process, they trust that more and learn from that more. And it, it creates a more realistic, um, I believe it's a more realistic, sustainable path to keep doing what you're passionate about versus we've seen it way too often with people in my space and ministry and other leadership spaces uh, in the human service business where you, it's just, there's a big public fall and everybody is so shocked. I get a lot of those phone calls. That's the first phone call. And when that happens and everybody's so shocked, including the person to happen to. And I'm always not at all. Because I don't, and it's not because they're a mega church pastor or a, it's because they're a person. And I was like, oh, did you remember that? You're a, you're a human. And so we put these, we put these unrealistic expectations on ourselves. And I look when I, part of the reason I got into the field was when I started getting these tools, it was like a whole new language for me. I'd never seen any value. I'd never heard any of this. And I was like, whoa, this is great. This is so cool. Like, I don't want to lead this. I want to be a part of it. Can you imagine live your life this way? How freeing it would be. I bet if I deliver this to other people, then it'd be hard not to live up to it. And I just assume when you get behind the curtain, every therapist and mental health professional you see is crushing life. And I, when I first, you know, the first year I was pretty, I was pretty disappointed. I was like, wow. <laughs> Turns out. We can be just as much of a mess as, as the people we're serving in, in many ways. And, and, and it gets dangerous when you are in environments that won't allow you to own, acknowledge, and to talk about your mess. Because that's when it starts yeah. becoming secretive. Mm-hmm. And then that whole myth gets legs. But if you can find an environment, we try to create that at onsite to where we talk about ourselves as much as we talk about the people we're serving. I mean, three times a day we circle up and say, did you? And we were all, we were all taught as mental health professions this concept of transference and counter-transference. And you probably can knows what, mm-hmm. know, what, know what that is. It's basically, if I'm in a session with you and suddenly you're, you're my dad, not you anymore, that, that can be a problem because I lose mm-hmm. my objectivity and bias. But we're taught as mental health professionals, this is what this is, avoid it at all costs. Because if you experience transference and countertransference, that's bad. Mm. You can't do your job. So when we're told that, we just keep it a secret. And our environment is like, that's a good thing because it always happens if you're a human being mm. with a heartbeat. People, you're going to get activated. You're going to have transference and countertransference. Yeah. Let's talk about it. So three times a day, we kind of we reward people not for, um, okay, Seth was in a group. What would you notice about him? What do we need to do to work with him? That's secondary. It's mm-hmm. what came up for you. Where did you get hooked in this person's story? And just by them being able to offload it, they go in with a little bit cleaner slate. And I used to also say that, and this is a soapbox, isn't it? I used to also say that, you know, if someone is incongruent, that's incongruous, not the word. If someone is struggling in their life, then they probably shouldn't be or aren't equipped to help somebody put their life together. And I don't think that's, that's really true. I think there, you have to be a little careful with that because if it's an active struggle, you might need to pull yourself out of the lineup, but I actually think they're the best. The wounded healers are the best. I think, and I just, I think they're the ones that, that translate. I used to get frustrated when I was in school because I thought here's a, here's a, a business school teacher teaching me how to run a business is never run a business. How could he, how could he or she possibly know how to run a business from a textbook? But now I'm th- now I've seen a lot of great entrepreneurs that are terrible teachers, 
and not good speakers. So I'm like, they're equipped at their, their job to do what they do well. It doesn't mean that I can do theirs or they can do mine, but everybody brings their own unique gifts to the world. I think if we can level the playing field and start seeing everybody, you asked that question earlier about being trauma-informed. And, you know, I've had lots of education on trauma-informed and I've taught trauma-informed care a lot. And the reality is nobody's taught me as much about trauma and being trauma-informed mm-hmm. than trauma survivors. Mm-hmm. Because when, when I'm in a room full of trauma survivors, these people can read the room like nobody's business. Because at one time or another, their life right. probably depended mm-hmm. on that. And therefore, they're, they're mm-hmm. going to size you up with their instincts and know if you've got an agenda, to know if you actually care about them, if you're just seeing them as a number. And what's helped me with that is they're so intuitive and so insightful that I'm like, if I could approach every human on the planet as if they have pain, then I'm going to approach them all differently. Not just the people that come to onsite or come to counseling. I'm going to approach everybody, every new hire. I'm like, they've got a story. I know they got a story. And so I'm first going to meet them as a person, not with an agenda, but just somebody who can empathize with their story. And I think if we can humanize one another, I, I liked what you said earlier about not dehumanizing, but when we humanize one another, um, everybody's box disappears. Oh, let's come back to the soapbox. Mm. There are no soapboxes. Mm. We're all on level playing. Okay. That's so good, man. Wow. That's so good. Uh, well, I, I just love what you said about employing wounded healers. It's another example of a healthy organization, I think. Um, but but closing up our conversation, you know, my, my wife and I uh, got to attend onsite a couple of years ago, and we we like to say that our experience there uh, really saved our marriage. You know, people talk about life before onsite and life after onsite, and it is true. And so I just wanted to ask you, how, how can people find, first off, you, um, what you're up to in the world, but also just get uh, more affiliated with what you do at onsite? Thank you. And we're, we're proud of our, our mission. We love what we do. We've got um, a couple campuses. Our main uh, campus is just west of Nashville, a beautiful spot in, in uh, Tennessee, middle Tennessee, and we've got uh, retreat centers, two retreat centers where people can come do short term workshops with groups, individuals, couples, uh, with leadership teams. But then beyond that, we've got a few other divisions and services that support, you know, uh, teams with EQ consulting. And and we've got a whole host of emotional health masterclasses, uh, for people who don't have the ability to travel that you can partake in some of that information, you know, from your computer in your home. And, I want to always say this because sometimes people get excited about a resource and if they connected to something that maybe you said, Seth, about your experience or something I've been saying, and they kind of put their eggs in that basket. And I want to be cautioning you from doing that, even though it's probably not good marketing on my end. But I, I just, there are a lot of great resources out there to help you unpack what might be going on. We are just one of them. And we're, we're small. We got a great big, you know, we got a good reach, but we're, we're small and we're not for everybody. And not everybody has the resources to come to a place like ours. And I, I remember early on, I set my sights on this one thing and then thought, oh, it's too expensive or I don't have time. And I was really let down and almost didn't find the resource that was right for me at that time. So I just want you to hear, we, we're a good resource that might be a fit for you, but we might not for any of the reasons I just said. Don't hesitate to call us because even if you look at our programming, it's like, I don't have time for that or I can't afford that or whatever it might be. Call us because I've got an entire team that's trained to help you find the resource that will support you wherever that might be. And uh, whatever your means might be, if you have none, if you have some, we're going to try to help you get the right resource somewhere. So, And how can people find that? 
on uh, at Miles Edcox is what what I do on socials when I do come to Social World and at on site. Uh, well, we just mm. changed this. We just we have a brand new URL. We were uh, at on-site workshops and www.onsiteworkshops.com. I tell you that because it'll still take you to our site, but now it's experienceonsite.com. Okay. So that's where you can find out what we're up to. Got a lot of fun, exciting stuff that we're kind of launching and doing right now. So we'd love to get to know you. Yeah. And can people hopefully expect something specific to you at any point sometime soon? I know you've been talking about human school for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I... uh, uh, I'm on the heels of starting a, a solo podcast uh, in, in really um, a whole new entity and initiative called, called Human School. And it, it's simply uh, a mission that will have digital classes and courses. We're going to be doing a lot of stuff in the social and emotional learning space in schools. I oh, love it. Um, podcasting. And I've got a book I'm working on called Human School. And it's... Um, it's, I'm just trying to make the information uh, less stigmatized, more accessible and more digestible for, for culture and for mainstream. So these will come at different, you know, lower price points and a lot of it will be free. And I'm excited to develop a lot of these resources and tools. And as I said, it from the top of the conversation, go to culture and try to get around the tables of some of the decisions that are being made mm-hmm. with some of our information. So I personally look at Every, you know, I went to a, a residential program in my early 20s to try to get my feet back on the ground. I've done a lot of counseling over the years. I still do on-site once a year, not because I, uh, it's not what's wrong yeah. with me. It's what's right with me, that I would want to become a better version of who I am. And But I really look at all those therapeutic things that I've done over my trajectory. None of them feel like rehab, treatment, therapy, counseling. To me, they mm. were all just human school. They taught me to mm. be more humane to myself, and in turn, I can be more humane to you, and I think that mm. creates a better humanity, and that's what Human School is going to be all awesome. about. So thanks for bringing that up, Seth. Thank you so, mu- so much, Miles. It's been a, a phenomenal, wonderful conversation. Really appreciate your time. Such a pleasure. Nice Likewise. To meet I really enjoyed being with you all. It was a great way to spend an hour, so thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Absolutely. Man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Truthwork Media Studios.